School of Prayer helped me become more humble as I realized how difficult it was for me to keep a regular discipline. The most challenging part of the School of Prayer was giving myself the grace necessary to grow and being patient and allowing the Spirit to do His work. The School of Prayer helped me to realize that I need to live a contemplative life. And it also helped me, in the context of a group, make this a reality. The most challenging part of uh, SOP was probably the, the pressing together of contemplation um, and social justice. Pressing them close together was uncomfortably helpful. And it's a rigor rooted in my experience or my acceptance as the beloved responding to that belovedness with devotion. I recommend the School of Prayer to anyone who wants to um, dig deeper and learn more about contemplative prayer practices. My word of wisdom to anyone who decides to do the School of Prayer is be patient and trust the work of the Spirit in you. One word if you choose to do School of the Spirit. Do what you can, not what you can't. Amen. To learn more about our formation schools, the School of Prayer, and our two-year certification in spiritual direction, the School of Contemplative Listening, and our August 4th family camp, please visit theinvitationcenter.org. We are currently recruiting for cohorts beginning in the fall of 2021. So I wanted to pop in here before my conversation with Brian Berghoff as we cover chapter two of Reparations, a guide for repentance and repair. I had initially hoped to feature the follow-up episode of chapter one with my time with Latorius Willis, who's one of my brothers from E.C. Brooks Correctional Facility, who just recently got out on June 15th. The idea was to feature um, my story. How did I become a person of faith who cares about things like reparations? Well, I've had uh, six years of visiting, volunteering, praying with a group of men at a correctional facility And so that is the arena, the learning space where I have grown and discovered God in the midst of these questions of not just the incarceration system, but also in questions of racial justice. I want to feature that. I think what I'm going to do is try to release that episode on July 4th. And instead, I'm pushing up the conversation I had earlier this week with Brian because we cover this fantastic speech that Frederick Douglass offered in 1852. This is a speech that Quan and Thompson discuss in the first third of chapter two. It just fits so well as we enter into the 4th of July weekend. And I also want to offer a word of encouragement as you continue working through this book, there is never a good time to dive into questions of white supremacy. 
And it's difficult for me to discern as a spiritual director trying to help people to rest, to slow down, to trust in the slow work of God, and yet at the same time to embrace these questions of the injustice that is happening in and around and through us. So I honestly didn't have the time and energy to tie on this series. In fact, this whole summer series, I don't have time for this. I've got three small children. It's summer. We have no structure without the regular schedule of school. But there's just something deep inside of me that knew I couldn't not dive into this. So one example of my kind of recklessness with this is that I messed up the tech on this conversation with Brian, had my microphone turned around. And I know you likely don't care about these things. What I want to do is to put enough thought and care into the production of this so that you, dear listener, have a sense that this is an intentional space for you to come and learn and grow. So wherever you are, in your journey here at the beginning of July 2021, we can accept that living in America is a kind of melee, a kind of nonstop discernment of to-dos, calendar, work, travel, competing priorities from the professional to the domestic. I invite you to renew your participation in this journey with the confidence that we can never master these ideas. We are not here to save the world. Largely, my hope is that you are opening more and more to your love and new trust in the work of the Holy Spirit and the healing of our communities, the healing of our churches, healing of our families, healing of our neighbors and of our country. And I also want to stress, I can't stress this enough, that I hope you are talking about this book with someone else. With the Invitation School of Prayer, one of the fundamental disciplines we try to cultivate and nurture in our community is the spirituality of study, that I open a book not to control and to hold it as a kind of acquisition to further my power, but that I listen for God in my reading. And then that spirituality deepens as I turn to someone else to say, this is where I'm experiencing God in and through this reading, this praying. So you're having a conversation with Duke, Quan and Greg Thompson, and then you can turn to the podcast and have a conversation with the voices I've gathered here, and then you can have a further spiritual conversation with people in your home, in your church, in your community, and that spirituality of study becomes so much bigger and broader in the sharing, in the listening to the other As I was thinking about this yesterday, I recalled Dietrich Bonhoeffer's 
letters and papers from prison and what he has to say about conversations there. I have this subscription to this fancy online digital library. And so I pulled up letters and papers from prison and typed in the word conversation in the search. And it comes up 50 times there. Bonhoeffer says things like, a whole new world opened in that conversation. He says elsewhere, in a conversation, something new can always happen. So I encourage you to have those conversations. And I also hope that you can hear that newness, that whole new world that opens here in my conversation with Brian Berghoff. Thanks for listening. It's an honor to have you on this journey. Amen. I am honored to be sitting here with someone that I have been looking forward to getting more time with, Brian Berghoff. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you. Uh, you were introduced to me uh, over the last couple of years. People are like, surely you know Brian Berghoff. And then one day you popped in at uh, the coffee shop and said hello. Right. And uh, that was a couple of years before you were ramping up with your uh, journey with your, your candidate candidating for Congress. Right. And so then when I finally kind of getting, was getting bandwidth to go, oh, I do want to hang out with him. You were pretty involved. Yeah. So, right. The schedule filled up suddenly. <laughs> and I was getting to see all these, uh, uh, gatherings and different groups. It's, it's a very busy, busy life, but you're now pastor. Right. Pastor of Pastor of Holland United Church of Christ, United yeah, Church Holland Christ. UCC. Great, and uh, your roots though are you're a born and bred West Michigander. I am. Yep, born yeah. and bred uh, CRC kid. Yeah, CRC kid. So I'm eager to explore more about who you are. Uh, not spending a lot of time with that, but just to give those that are listening a glimpse of. The different voices we're calling this series white people talking to white people about racism and we're each going to have different levels of enthusiasm and uh, different kinds of questions and so there will be no doubt someone listening that will especially be drawn to your journey Mm. in ways that they're not drawn to mine or Susanna's or Kate's or even Denise's um But before we dive in further, let's do this prayer from Howard Thurman. So we do open our hearts to God, trusting that it is only by the power of the Spirit that we can see this question of white supremacy, our own participation in that, and how we then find ways to heal, to cooperate with the Spirit in healing and repairing. So we pray, open unto me light from my darkness. Open unto me courage from my fear. Open unto me hope from my despair. Open unto me peace from my turmoil. 
Open unto me joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confession. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me love for my hates. Open unto me thyself for myself. Lord, Lord, open unto me. Amen. So, uh, the way this all came about is I was trying to recruit various churches, mm. especially in the area. I know there's a couple churches out of state that are journeying with this, but your church was the only church in town that dove in. Yeah. So that's amazing just to know that Maple Avenue is in spirit journeying some way together. And so having you here is another way to make those connections. Yeah. But from what I remember, you had already approached Maple with an interest in, before we even, I even circled back. Yeah, right. Uh, Yep. So we've had an ongoing uh, book study Mm -hmm. effort, uh, sort of an extension of our justice action team. Mm -hmm. And so we'd studied issues um, like housing crisis, homelessness, Mm -hmm. racism, Mm -hmm. um, climate change in the environment, uh, those kinds of things. And, um, and wanted to come around again Mm -hmm. to, to race. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so, um, knowing Denise a bit and Mm -hmm. and the congregation at Mm -hmm. Maple Avenue a bit wondered about, you know, Mm -hmm. reaching out to another church just Mm -hmm. for some sort of Mm -hmm. cross pollination, you know, sometimes when you're in the same group with more or less, familiar faces for a group of right. time. Sometimes you just want to invite some other voices yeah. into the circle to just yeah. hear other stories. Yeah. So you, this is part of your discipline already as a church to work through some rigorous books that engage social justice. Exactly. So um, the the backstory then would be Maple Avenue being such a funky, small church, attempting as best we can this multicultural life together. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our liturgical refrain for our community is together, always together. Uh, but accomplishing that's awkward and strange in a, a very, very white part of West Michigan. Um, so I had already thought of doing this reparations book. I went to Denise and she's like, sure, let's do that. And then I didn't even know that you guys had been invited. And then suddenly I was uh, thrust back the one to answer you guys, right. like, let's do that. Yeah. And, um, but I know as you and I have talked, part of the interest was to be able to engage people of color about this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, I, and I would say as part of that backstory, yeah. our, one of the studies our, our church has done is the UCC as a denomination has a white privilege oh, curriculum. Wow. wow. It's like a six to eight weeks sort of intensive mm-hmm. um, on seeing and discovering white mm-hmm. privilege and, mm-hmm. Um, geared especially toward white folks. Uh, and so we've done mm-hmm. that uh, twice as a community. Um, and, you know, incredible how you even going through the same thing mm-hmm. again, yeah. you're, you're in a new position from mm-hmm. having gone through it once and absorbed mm-hmm. and, and your lens is a little wider. Mm-hmm. Um, but even going through it again, just mm-hmm. realizing there's just so much more to know and to see. Mm-hmm. 
on this topic and it's a it's a lifelong journey it's not like oh we did this study and oh, oh i get yeah. that now and what's the next thing oh yeah it's this lifelong right journey right thank you yeah as uh i have a little bit of a foot still in the academy being formally employed by hope and my wife working there and i still do some adjunct work there um uh, continue to be aware of the resistance to diversity training, mm. even in Christian institutions. And so for those that are listening that are on this journey, you're likely already open to this. But as we think about those are, those are that are around us, um, to say um, you will always be learning about this. I think in the last conversation with Kate, we were talking about code switching and how hard it can be, you know, with people that I love that are in my church and other places. And I can hear them with their black family and friends speaking in one way. And then when they come talk to me, they switch over that. And I just said to her, Mom, I guess I'm just not safe yet. Hmm. And she said, the trouble is, Josh, you might not ever be safe. Right. So that's underneath this of needing to go back to the diversity training. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's a lot of layers. <laughs> yeah. So for those that are listening, we might be rehearsing and reviewing things and coming back through, through some of the same ideas. And that's on purpose right. in many ways. So um, did your journey into the UCC from the reformed context being, you said a CRC, yeah. did a lot of that move have to do with justice? That was certainly a big piece of mm -hmm. it. Um, I think for, for me, it was sort of a, a simultaneous uh, journey of deconstruction mm -hmm. around a lot of uh, assumed beliefs or mm -hmm. core doctrines that I mm -hmm. just was sort of handed, you know, mm -hmm. and taught in a, mm -hmm. in, in a good way, mm -hmm. in an appropriate way, right? Mm -hmm. In a context as a child in a mm -hmm. Christian home and, and, and all of that. Um, but, and this was after graduating from Calvin Seminary nice. and suddenly, you know, you're, you're given all these tools to sort yeah. of engage the scripture and engage mm -hmm. church history and you really get sort of, you dig into some of that stuff. And mm -hmm. I sort of felt like I had this desire to know the the truth mm -hmm. truth mm -hmm. like so what you know what was really happening with mm -hmm. Jesus and 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 in his context and I started to discover some of the sort of Jewish um obvious now but mm -hmm. didn't grow up talking about Jewish realities mm -hmm. around Jesus or mm -hmm. the New Testament very much because the church had done a really nice job of sort mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. uh parsing Jesus from his context mm -hmm. and as I began to, you know, see Jesus in the context of the the Hebrew scriptures and the mm -hmm. prophets and the Torah and the, the festivals, I was like, holy cow, like mm -hmm. I'm learning all kinds of stuff that was there all along, but I didn't have eyes to see it at mm -hmm. all. And that just made me ask, well, what else don't I know? And so I started devouring biblical scholarship mm -hmm. and scholarship from people of color mm -hmm. or uh, LGBTQ folks who I just mm -hmm. hadn't been reading those perspectives, hadn't yeah. been taught to read them. Yeah. And it just made me have so many questions mm -hmm. that I began to wonder, mm -hmm. what do I believe about any of this? Yeah. Which is a tough place to be as a, while you're also a pastor <laughs> and leading a congregation. 
But the thing that was sort of my anchor through all of that was the person of Jesus and his heart for people and his compassion and move toward the kingdom and justice. And I kind of you know, felt like I was in this space where I'm not sure I can answer all the questions theologically about who Jesus was or uh-huh. or what the Trinity mm-hmm. is or or even what happened on the cross or mm-hmm. what the significance of all of that was. Mm-hmm. But as I see his life, his teachings, mm-hmm. his example, his heart, mm-hmm. I'm on board 100 yeah. percent with that. And yeah. I'm gonna go wherever, you know, that leads and right. and and let the other stuff sort of sort itself out right. and not have to answer every right. question. Thank you for sharing that. And to, to document that on the mic, people could uh, make assumptions. Just you know, looking you up online and seeing UCC vis-a-vis this very reformed context, and they could make assumptions. But the gift of being able to sit down and mm-hmm. to hear your heart in that is a lot of the work I've been going through myself. Uh, I ended up doing this prison work. This would have been my seventh year at EC Brooks, uh, and it. But just by nature, it ended up becoming an interfaith conversation. Mm. And I had no training to know how to interact with uh, very, very Jesus-y, evangelical, like piety forward mm-hmm. in their vocabulary. It's one beautiful uh, former meth cook who was in a biker gang named Jack, who I miss dearly, is probably one of the most Jesus-y human beings I've ever known. <laughs> But then uh, Latorius, who I'm going to be featuring right now, just got out of prison. Um, he's like known in the prison as the Muslim, mm-hmm. and he would come and pray. And we had he's a traditional um, uh, Muslim. There's you know nation of Islam, Buddhists, agnostics. Some people just wanted to come be silent, mm-hmm. be in a quiet place. So I was like, all right, I'm. <sighs> a follower of Jesus. How do I keep doing this? So what I hear you saying is, it's something that I've gotten close to is I'm a follower of Jesus. We might not exactly know what that means, Mm. but I hope that the way I talk about Jesus, the way I embody Jesus allows you to be you. Yeah. I would love for you all to be Jesus, see the way I am. But the most important thing here is to honor who you are right now. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way uh, to put it, Josh. And and for me, that was a a, a learning, right? Because growing up in a, a faith tradition that was very sort of secure in its yeah. theological foundations and carried a lot of pride about mm. its history and traditions. And then while I was in college in Ann Arbor, I got connected in with an evangelical campus ministry. And there it was all about sharing the gospel and the four spiritual laws and evangelism and and you know you all need to be where i am you know and and sort of moving into a space where exactly what you said sort of a like let go of some of that and and allow people to be exactly where they are Mm -hmm. and trust that the spirit is doing whatever the spirit Mm -hmm. is doing and i can't manipulate that Mm -hmm. or force that Mm -hmm. and sometimes we cause unintended harm by Mm -hmm. trying to sort of Mm -hmm. you know twist arms or or Mm -hmm. insist on what we want rather than giving space for what is Mm -hmm. and allowing what is to be okay as it is which is what cuts to the core of this question of reparations and white supremacy mm. and what I'm learning. Um, I've been reading and talking in this uh, journey on the podcast about Willie James Jennings and his understanding of 
our pedagogy, the, 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 the institution, the learning institutions, whether the church or, or the university, is based around a pedagogy of the plantation. Mm. So this is, and, and the, the water we drink in America, in the air we breathe, the way we sleep, it's this question of, he says, um, control, possession, and mastery. Mm. So when that comes down to the vocabulary of Christ, I love my history as an evangelical, and I still consider myself in many ways. If we read Mark Knoll and the history of evangelicalism, um, but uh, the way we've said this in the School of Prayer, as folks, we, we had 32 folks in the School of Prayer last year, 20 of them were people in ministry that were in a stage of deconstruction like what you're talking about. And most people listening to the podcast are usually seasoned uh, people of faith, um, whether they're lay ministry or, um, that's what they taught me, uh, the, the lingo of professional Christians. <laughs> uh, yeah. Paid staff at some church. Right. Um, some, some journey either leaning towards deconstruction or there were folks that were in the middle of deconstruction and then coming out of it. And so what we, we ended up saying is if there is a thing like orthodoxy, if there is something like that, it, it cannot be held and we cannot posture ourselves into it as a kind of mastery or control. Mm, yeah. We can't, we can't be the owners mm -hmm. of it and, and we try. And when we do, we create these in out mm -hmm. categories exactly. of people who are exactly on board with where mm -hmm. we are and those who aren't and those mm -hmm. who aren't are less than yeah. and, and a very non Jesus yeah. position to hold, right, but right. yet the church is great at that too right. often. So the we could go on, you yeah. know, with that and talk about, you know, the the binary, the dualism of that. Um, but yeah, the question for anyone listening, we we have uh, folks that are across the map here. We'll have hopefully some Catholic voices in here. Um, the question is not whether I'm inside or outside, as if there's a line I trip over suddenly to the correctness that allows me to be in God's favor. Mm -hmm. The question always with the invitation is, how am I able to move closer to the center where Christ is, where God is? How am I able in this journey? Our theme question here is, how can rep this book, Reparations, help me work out my faith and fear and trembling so that I empty myself moving closer to the center of being like Christ. So, so thanks for that introduction. Um, what would you say about how your people are, how you are accessing, how are you finding the book as a whole? Yeah. So our, our group that's meeting weekly to discuss meets right before worship on Sunday morning. So mm -hmm. I haven't been able to participate in that as, yeah. as, as a leading worship and sure. we're at, church plant, so to speak, or a newer church. So we don't own our building. So we uh, have to set up the space yeah. every Sunday. So I haven't been in on the conversations, but I've heard very good feedback mm -hmm. from folks that mm -hmm. they're enjoying the book and, and mm -hmm. being challenged and, and learning things. And I will say for me, mm -hmm. I've only read through chapter two so far, sure, but already in the introduction mm -hmm. was like, this introduction should be must reading for every white person in America. <laughs> I mean, it is just so... Mm -hmm. Like clear and thorough wasn't the right word for an introduction, sure. but but they're just very 
they frame things so well and yeah. so clearly that so there's no mistaking what's being said mm-hmm. and what isn't being said. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just looking forward to where it goes because it's it's been fantastic. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what we've been saying. There's something. Uh, what is it that we would say about like a high end like? I don't want to blow a bunch of smoke here, but, <laughs> but just like when we think about the classic, the the canon, whether we like canon or those people that ever attained to any canon, they're able to um, say something that that feels complete. Yeah, there's something that's you can tell that they've worked through the necessary um, pieces to then put this on the page. Yeah. You don't get the sense that they're just kind of half-assing this. Not, not in the slightest. <laughs> they're not, not just in the slightest. kind of do-goodest. Uh, like I'm going to be a, a bleeding heart liberal and figure out how to like just be in the game. Like these, this is these are the the writings of people that have sat with it. Yeah. And as pastors, so. Yeah. So, how would you like to dive into this? Do you have some passages you want to? open us up or give us an introduction to how you would... Yeah, so, I mean, the chapter two, uh, mm-hmm. seeing the reality of white supremacy, mm-hmm. uh, as I was looking back mm-hmm. at uh, some of the white privilege curriculum that I've gone through, they talk about this paper written in 1988 by Peggy McIntosh mm-hmm. entitled White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, mm-hmm. and how that was one of the earlier sort of naming and and exposing white privilege Mm. um, that sort of really began to open the conversation around race to a broader place Mm. of of white privilege and and that's what this chapter in many ways is about that we we too often in this country we're not trained to see what's there Mm -hmm. we're given a narrative about who we are as a nation and a people and there's a certain lens we're sort of handed through which to see that. Mm-hmm. And we have to do work to, to see other things. And that's what this book is helping us do. Mm-hmm. And it actually, this chapter begins, this is timely, we're recording this leading into the 4th of July. Yeah. Right? And, and they, this chapter opens with Frederick Douglass <laughs> and his incredible, insanely powerful speech about Independence Day. I'm going to work that into my sermon this Sunday, by the yeah. way, because Great. it preaches still. Oh, wow. How many, you know, Talk 150 years later. Text that we need in, in our canon. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was getting chills just reading the beginnings of this chapter. Mm-hmm. So, friends, if, if you're listening to this mm-hmm. and haven't read chapter two of this book, like, mm-hmm. or just look up the speech, uh, What is the Fourth of July mm-hmm. to the Slave? Maybe that's not the right title of the speech, but mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm so good and what he's trying to do is help his largely white audience see mm-hmm. what they haven't been trained to see yeah and we all need that and so the difficulty here we could talk about and, and they do get into the history of blackness and whiteness the invention of race right. later in the chapter yep. um but before we even can know how to get into that and this is why they preceded it just with just this discipline of seeing in general, hmm. just seeing that there's a there's an issue here, and then looking at racism and the uh, you know the personal, the the, the systemic, the um, then they, they talk about the cultural layers, the different layers of racism. But then now going this deep dive of seeing specifically, what's really hard for most of us is that 
we want to love America. Yeah. We want to love yeah. fireworks and right. um, hot dogs and, <laughs> apple pie. And, and apple pie. And this is, in many ways, cutting against the sacredness mm. of our identity, mm. of how we were raised. And so if, if this is a trouble, if I pay attention to Frederick Douglass, where's the stop? If I start pulling this thread mm-hmm. and start seeing this. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, part of my own journey was reading folks like Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States. And, you know, a lot of gap filling of of American history that just you're not taught in school. And you just start getting blown away. And as you said, that sort of love for country that is instilled in you as someone who grows up in this country often is given and handed. And it turns into a genuine love and pride of nation it gets complicated because you see more and you see what we call as american greatness how much that was built on pain Mm -hmm. on intentional suffering on ownership of other human beings Mm -hmm. and what they named so well in this chapter was is that white supremacy is not sort of incidental to mm-hmm. America's foundings. It's not this little mm-hmm. side thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a side dish on the, the the main course. It's like baked into every dish. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is hard mm-hmm. as someone who loves your country to, to say, okay, so how do I continue mm-hmm. to love my country but sort of realize where we came from and that we're not close to where we can be yet? Mm-hmm. The way it shakes out for me personally is just simply, uh, yeah, how do we celebrate the fourth? Mm. From Frederick D- Douglass to Tanahasi Coates saying that the kind of revolution, his call for reparations, is so that we don't just sit around snarfing down hot dogs and watching the fireworks without understanding this. So my, my wife and I are like, do we... Do we do fireworks anymore? Yeah, <laughs> can we? Right. We want to. We want to help our kids know, like from the beginning, there's a different story here that we're trying to help you see. When you, uh, as a pastor, um, I don't want to make assumptions that there's not folks that show up in your congregation, or just even family and friends of those that are in your congregations, or people in in the neighborhood. What would you say to them when they say? You're threatening the roots of my love for my country. As a pastor, how did you respond to that? Well, I think I would respond in that I'm trying to help you love more of what is Mm -hmm. and see more of what is, Mm -hmm. right? We're very good at human beings Mm -hmm. as sort of rewriting history, even our own personal histories of what we want it to be versus what really is. Because there's always pain in human life, and pain is hard. And our minds and hearts are really good at sort of Mm -hmm. helping us navigate that. But sometimes it shields us from it Mm -hmm. because we don't want to deal with the pain. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say, I want you to love your country more, Mm -hmm. and you can love it more by knowing where it came from, where it is now, Mm -hmm. and then where it can go. And we can't go into a better future if we don't understand the past and how that's gotten us to the present 
then we're not going to move into a better future. And as we look around, we can all see that we do need this reality of white supremacy and racism is still in front of us every day if we have eyes to see. Yeah. Yeah. So what is real love? Is love just an infatuation with Mm. some uh, ideal, some uh, caricature? Right. Of what we believe America really is. But, yeah. Well, and I was going to say also for, you know, people of faith, for Christians, there, there always needs to be an un, a healthy sort of distancing of sort of national citizenship with mm-hmm. sort of commitment to Jesus and, and to God, which should be supreme, obviously. Right. But, right. but somehow those things are so conflated in our country. This nationalism and faith gets mm-hmm. so, like— I think there was a person in Congress who who tweeted last week that there were two nations created by God specifically to accomplish God's purposes, Israel and the United States. And I and I saw that. Yeah, I can see you physically reacting like it makes you ill, but there's an audience that hears that and says, "Oh yeah." And just so even just like distancing ourselves, yeah. like seeing our citizenship in its proper context and the weight it should have and not have in our lives is such an important thing we have to do. Like it's incidental in so many ways that we live in this country. We could easily live in in Peru or, you know, Yugoslavia or or England or or China or wherever, but we live here, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's not the core. It shouldn't be the core of our identity, but we're taught for it to be the core. And it's so so bewildering for me when we rehearse the Lenten journey, the Pascal mystery, (laughs) that Jesus did not even come to establish an earthly kingdom. (laughs) And he didn't, there's nowhere, there's no way to defend biblically that America, maybe Israel, if you wanted to try to go there, somebody, but that America is, we want to, this is. There's scriptural precedent for Israel. (laughs) There's scriptural precedent. (laughs) America, you're kind of on your own. If you wanted to get your Old Testament theology uh, you know, work on that, but yeah. but then to understand, someone has been posting. I, I saw that we're actually Egypt, not Israel. Yeah, or or Rome to put it or, in yeah, Jesus context. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So and and how does empire mm-hmm. sort of play in the scriptural narrative? Mm-hmm. And what is God's word mm-hmm. to those in power? And and where is Jesus in that story of, of nations and empire? Like he's with, he's part of an oppressed people, a minority people on the underside of power. Mm-hmm. And that is the opposite of where the Western church has been for much of its existence. So the, um, the journey here for some folks, th- this kind of rabbit trail could be, one that leads to despair and anger. Hmm. And there's likely a lot of lament that folks need to experience before they can practice their own repentance in this journey. Um, however, going back to the question of loving, if we really love someone, we wouldn't want them to be sick or blind. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't want their, their health to suffer from an, an, a spiritual anemia. And so, uh, this is a whole other posture that uh, is scary for folks to step back and to think there's some real growth that needs to happen 
And that ultimately, I just want to keep rehearsing this in and out. This is a hopeful, wondrous um, wagering on the work of redemption of of, of the cross. Mm. So um, there is some uh, sections here where they quote some of Douglas. Would you want to just even read part of this is to kind of give folks the larger context as we're just uh, jamming here on this, but then also just document for listeners some of the actual verbiage and let them hear it. Yeah, so they talk about this speech that Frederick Douglass is giving to a largely white audience, Mm -hmm. and they note that he kept using the word your Mm -hmm. instead of our when talking about America and the Independence Day and so on. Mm -hmm. And they say a hidden repudiation lurked beneath the surface of his words, and he was sort of building to this moment. Mm -hmm. And so now this is Douglass. Fellow citizens, pardon me, allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in the Declaration of Independence extended to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. And then he goes on to say, uh, the 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. And then, you know, the classic line, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? And I'll just read one more line. He says, I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. We just need to pause there with that. Um, The 4th of July is yours, not mine. Hmm. You may rejoice. I must mourn. And then what does he mourn about? Your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license. Your national greatness swelling vanity your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless your denunciation of tyrants brass fronted impudence your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mockery your prayers and hymns your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast fraud Deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up the crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. Oh my gosh. I mean, this is honestly, for those that are offended, this is a prophetic voice. This could be Jeremiah. (laughs) Yeah. Or Isaiah. I think of Isaiah, Isaiah. God talking about (laughs) what are your fasts? What are your religious celebrations, your Sabbaths? Like Mm -hmm. if they're not not rooted in justice toward Mm -hmm. the weakest and the least among you, Mm -hmm. they're hollow. This is a voice crying out in the wilderness. Yes. Um, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And um, Mm. Israel, you Sadducees, Pharisees, you have not seen what I've actually called you to. Uh, this is Romans 3, you know, who, who among you is righteous? Not even one. Yeah. 
Yeah, and they and they note the authors after this that you know when we were talking earlier about the ambivalence now towards celebrating the Fourth of July. He notes white Americans are right to celebrate each of the blessings that have come as a result, you know, of this mm-hmm. nation's history, as long as they know that these things are true only for them. Amen. Yeah. And then to whom much is given. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And yeah, I mean, the book title is Reparations. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really looking forward to yeah. seeing how they sort of unpack that idea because they make such a they're building such a case mm-hmm. of history and and wrongs and and resultant realities ongoing realities and i'm just really looking forward to uh mm-hmm. to seeing where they take that and what some of their recommendations are for concrete the action practice. and practices mm-hmm. that can then embody our mm-hmm. faith not just feeling bad or knowing this as a white person. Like, that's not the goal. The goal is equity and justice and what can be. For you and your congregation and for listeners, my wife, I hope, will find a way to do a feature on her practical work of reparations. She's in a Facebook group Mm. that she had to do some training even to participate in. And it's not a faith-based group, but uh, we're hoping either she will bear witness to how she got into it. It was started by one of her friends from grad school and then how she continues to participate. And we're also hoping maybe she'll find someone who's one of the moderators of that group. So there are uh, several examples that are happening. It's not really well known, but we're hoping to shine some light on that. Um, And then also as she's wrestling with our discussion group last night, um, that she's been doing that without a Christian perspective on this, mm. thinking thoroughly through that. And that's been fine, but but just learning, okay, how, how can I do this um, more sustainably with a mission through my faith and with my faith? So um, we have this awesome introduction with, with Douglas, and then in order to get at white supremacy, they get into some of what has been uh, understood and misunderstood is critical race theory and looking at the fine print of, of race as an invention of the Enlightenment or of modernity. Mm-hmm. So um, let's just touch on a little bit of that. Sure. Um, had you already, in your, your, your diversity training, and that, did they already take a dive into that? Yeah, some level. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So they talk about, you know, some of the things that used to separate uh, people were things around culture, religion, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of things. And then um, with slavery, as it was happening in the West and in the early Americas, uh, they began to realize those categories um, couldn't continue to justify the practice. They had to come up with, they had to invent something else mm-hmm. on which to sort of validate mm-hmm. what they were doing. And and that's when the sort of the invention of, of race mm-hmm. really began to happen. And so blackness was sort of created uh, as this thing that could differentiate those mm-hmm. who are from a more European background to those who are being taken from the African nations. And, and they began to ascribe things based on race in a way that had never been done before. Mm-hmm. And so it created unique, and they talk about how this is so unique to America and the United States, mm-hmm. 
this idea that, uh, and so then there was the opposite of black, which was white or non-black, mm-hmm. and they began to ascribe terrible things to people of color, uh, less than, um, industrious, or not industrious, lazy, mm-hmm. um, you know, up to no good, whatever, you know, yeah. fill in the blank. I don't want to go through the litany because it's just not, we don't want to. <laughs> well, I do want to, um, yeah, the, the, so, so yeah, the, the point was, if I have come to a new world with a sense of manifest destiny, the mm. kingdom of God is with me, and now I'm amongst these savages, and I have tamed the savages, the natives that are here, and then I'm bringing in another savage from the Atlantic trade. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's easy for me to have this condescension of control that God has brought me here. But then they say here... Um, what happens when the project succeeds? Yeah. What happens when the slaves adopt the master's culture? What happens when the unconverted convert? On what basis do they remain enslaved? So that's the modern invention. Well, they must be lazy. They must not be smart. There must be something morally corrupt. And then they go on to say there must be something essentially dangerous. Yep. About blackness. Yes. Oh, it just hits you to the core. And I mean, they frame it so well. What happens when the project succeeds? Like, well, okay, now we've brought our culture to you. We brought our religious tradition. And then when you adopt that, mm-hmm. how can we continue to justify owning you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they found a way. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, we can often assume that, well, that, that was then, but this is now, right. you know, and what we're trying to do is to imagine this is the work of seeing how these demonic ideas persist. Like I, I said earlier, that they're in the water we drink, in the air we breathe, yeah, they talk about uh, white supremacy in three ways. They talk about it as original mm-hmm. to the United States, mm-hmm. as pervasive, and as enduring. So as you said, it's not just this was then. Mm-hmm. It has persisted. Mm-hmm. So um, out of those three, what, uh, what did you already have a familiarity with of those three types of white supremacy? And on what especially surprised you and helped you see this further? Yeah. I think the word of those three that stands out to me is, is pervasive. Yeah. I, I think I, you know, I've done a fair bit of reading on, on our origins and understanding, you know, the, the beginnings and, and how slavery was core to the building up of the nation and, and those kinds of things. And I certainly to some degree and always learning about the realities of the presence, the enduring, mm-hmm you know, legacy of, of, of slavery and race in this country. But this this word pervasive feels so perfectly descriptive that I, I'm still wrestling with it, right? I'm still sitting with that. Like, yeah. that, that it's not just, oh, there was this great part of America and then this side little part that we don't like that much, but yes, it was there, mm-hmm. which I feel like a lot of people sort of is the defensive posture when beginning to learn about this. Like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, we know there was slavery, but... But it wasn't really that bad, and and you know this really liberty for all, and we're now we're there or something. But this word pervasive mm-hmm. 
just sort of helps you see it permeates Mm -hmm. everything. They talk about a garden and how it's not just a weed here or there, Mm -hmm. white supremacy. It's like a native species Mm -hmm. in the garden of this nation. Mm -hmm. And that's so much. I mean... So the pervasiveness and then the enduring is just further vocabulary for understanding racism as cultural. Yeah. Um, that these things are always going to be in us. I was just uh, in a session of spiritual direction with a awesome person who's struggling with an addiction and relapsing mm. and thinking about how addiction in AA, they would say, I'm always going to be an alcoholic. Mm. And, and what, what I would engender to say here is we have an addiction to our privilege, mm. to our greatness. And so this is why I have to keep going back to more diversity training, why I, yeah. I will never close the door on this. I will always be addicted. Uh, Richard Rohr flat out says it this way in his book on the 12 step that we're all addicts. Mm. What are we addicted to? We're primarily addicted to our own way of seeing the world. Mm. And that then is as a white Anglo-Saxon <laughs> Protestant yep. that has all these degrees. And I'm still working on a degree and we're sitting up here in my fancy studio. So how, the question then is, not how do I resist that? But when am I resisting? When am I finding the fear here? And when is that an opportunity for me to die to myself? Yeah, and how is a, as a someone aspiring to follow Christ, you know, follow that model of sort of renouncing power and privilege, which is really at the core of his his way. Mm-hmm. And it it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's really hard. Like I, as a pastor, I wrestle with that all the time. You know, I as a white straight mm-hmm. male. Uh, I have so much privilege in this society, and in West Michigan, I've, my parents were born in the Netherlands, so I, you know I can even throw that card out there if I want to. And it's it's like, what do I do? I've been given that, and 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 how do I how do I work with that? How do I how do I use the power that I've been granted through no accomplishment of my own to to amplify others, to lift up others, to know when to shut up. Mm-hmm to know when to step out of the way and get out of the way. In fact, when I was asked to consider running for Congress, my first thought was, do we really need a white Dutch guy to run for office in West Michigan? Like that's been time out of mind what we've done. And so, you know, my first thought was, I don't want to do it. Like, I feel like we need someone else, like not me. And, you know, I, w- I waited for someone else to step up because I really didn't want to do it. But then sort of the, it was like, well, if you don't do it, we're not sure we have someone. Sometimes greatness is thrust upon us. And we, and even in your, your journey, it was uh, a hope for us because how do we believe a person of colors in this part of the, the country is going to get that spot? So in order for that person of color to get there, we need... Brian, to get there. Maybe someone to pave the way exactly. and then help change the narrative so that exactly. real change happens exactly. further down the road. And I'd say that's a model to bring that back to this conversation. This is a small conversation. There's not a huge amount of listeners to the Invitation Podcast. There's not a lot of people doing the discussion groups for this. 
But the question is how those of us who are beginning to see in the way that Quan and Thompson are helping us see, how we're then able to model this for those around us. So um, as we bring this to a close, I can't help but because of your position in this journey um, running for office to want to just go ahead and talk about culture wars and mm-hmm. how we feel that we, we're talking about the differences and the, um, the kind of assumptions we can have about just even different denominations as we open this conversation. And I had it pulled. And this is really important because the way we all wear this out right now is in a very polarized culture where even those that don't want to do any political fighting we get sucked into it. And if even if we're not getting sucked into it, we're carrying it mm-hmm. as a heaviness. And so I especially would love you to think about this. Um, so on one side, we're talking about those who want to make America great again, that, that it is a, a, a sacred cow. We can't touch this. Right. It's sac- sacrosanct. On the other hand is this other story. They say here, um, There are others whose account of American origins is exclusively a tale of white supremacy and bondage, an economic and political tragedy in which the unfathomable suffering of some enabled the unimaginable enrichment of others. And in this rendering, America is understood wholly in terms of villainy as a singular example of the radicalized horrid, the radicalized horrors of bondage, extraction and violence. This would be as if we just surrender to the bad news and despair. Anything that might complicate this account is often viewed with dismissive suspicion. For a great many Americans, the conflict between these two zero-sum accounts is a source of personal stress and political agitation. Each side frames its claims not simply in historical but in moral terms. Each views the other exclusively as the enemy, and each accepts nothing less than absolute allegiance. It is not our intention or desire to participate in this conflict or to have our view of American origins weaponized in the service of American culture wars. We're not seeking to offer a comprehensive theory of America or to imbue the complex origins of America with a single meaning. Our claim about American origins is much more modest. Simply put, it is this. The social supremacy of people characterized as white, in other words, white supremacy, was present and powerful in the founding of America. How do you hold that as someone who is seeking political office to straddle that yeah, that, that's that's a great question, and it's it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, especially as someone on the journey I've been on, who's been leaning more and more into rediscovering or discovering for the first time some of the troubling realities about our origins, I want to lean into that as a pastor and as someone who feels like wants to have somewhat of a prophetic voice, but that's really hard to balance when you're running for office, you know, a national office in this country. People expect all this flowery Mm -hmm. language about nation, Mm -hmm. and that sort of comes with the territory. And so, I, you know, 
I'm not sure how well I balanced that, you yeah. know, and I, I'm sure, you know, well, when you run for office, you don't please everyone kind of totally. like, you know, being a pastor and so forth, but totally. it was a struggle, yeah. you know, I'll just say it was a real struggle. And yeah. I felt like I had to hold things back sometimes that I wanted to say, but maybe weren't politically expedient. And I hated that. Oh, I hated it. Man, I'm like, sorry. don't, don't muzzle me, you know, like, don't, I should be able to say Gotta whatever. Be the politician pr- prophet and you really want to be the pastor is that what i hear you say? well something i mean it's like <laughs> yeah it's just really hard and it's mm-hmm. like well you want to make you know it's like you want to make change for the better but you can't really do that unless you get elected and mm-hmm. you if you can't get elected if you say certain things ahead of time mm-hmm. that are just gonna like people aren't even though you may be right mm-hmm. or or there may be truth in it mm-hmm. some people haven't done the work or aren't in a position to hear what you're really saying and they'll they'll just write you off and not and stop listening to you yeah. so there was some just you know probably some good justification to sort of really pick mm-hmm. your times and spaces and words carefully mm-hmm. and I respect that but it was really hard road mm-hmm. to walk personally mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 an honor and a delight to sit with you as you put that ache into vocabulary and I will say that as you postured yourself in your messaging and uh, your campaign there was a, a merciful grace in your presence in that and so this goes back to that thing you were saying earlier about all right, if there is a thing like orthodoxy and it's true it, the question is how I hold that yeah. and that could speak back to our concerns about fundamentalist roots and that can also be another kind of progressive fundamentalism that has no grace that's what they're naming here in this section yes that if you don't line up with me yes then i don't even want to give you the time of day yeah i'm ready to take your head off and to write you off completely you're anathema because you are not completely died in this this real this you're not a real true progressive <laughs> yeah and you you name that very well like there's fundamentalisms that aren't just on the right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well brian Berghoff, it is an honor and a gift to be able to sit with you in this conversation agreed thanks so much josh thank you So again, I cannot express my gratitude for anyone who would want to go on this journey with the invitation. It takes a kind of ache and hunger for God and for justice, for truth, for the kingdom of God on the earth to want to dive into this very difficult topic this summer. If these conversations like the one I just had with Brian Berghoff, resonate with you. And if you have an interest in integrating a conversation on racism and racial justice with a journey into spiritual practice, I do sincerely invite you to consider the Invitation School of Prayer. It's an eight-month journey in the rule of life that's at the vital intersection of contemplation and justice. So for the first four months, we all practice the same rule of life, 
that I have put together. I would describe it as a kind of entry-level, moderate type of rigor with fasting, daily prayers, invitation to spirituality of reading. But during that first four months, you are writing and rewriting your own rule of life so that in January, you get to practice the disciplines that you feel called to for the last four months in community. So I described this to several people lately really as a kind of failure lab. This is not an invitation to some kind of spiritual muscularity. We are not here to salute God or to perform for God. But honestly, we learn how to pray by being aware of our failures to pray. If you are an avid Invitation podcast listener and you are within driving distance of Holland, Michigan, I also would like to draw your attention to our first annual Invitation family camp that's on August 4. This is a 24-hour experience, an overnight of tent camping with organic food and a friend of the invitation, a chef, is designing a wonderful menu and we have some activities for kids. And the core question as we are together is how do we experience God in everything, in creativity, in nature, in food, in fellowship, Mostly we just need a good party, a good gathering. Initially, I had intended for this family camp to be a community building event for those that have been in the School of Prayer, but it looks like we have space for more people. So if you have interest in the family camp, please check out the formation tab at theinvitationcenter.org. Also, if you are not currently a subscriber to the invitation, I invite you to find the subscribe button at the bottom of the opening homepage of theinvitationcenter.org. But the greatest gift you can offer the invitation is to share this resource with someone else. If the invitation has helped you in your journey to find God, to understand something more about yourself or how to live on this earth, the invitation has gifted you with that kind of self-knowledge and God knowledge, please share the invitation with someone else. I don't take too much stock on these things, but I know that some people actively solicit reviews on the iTunes app where this is also hosted. If there's any way that you can help get the word out, that would be very helpful. Again, I hope that you are well wherever you are as you're listening to this. Grace, peace, love, the righteousness, the justice and holiness of Jesus Christ be with you. Until next time. Amen.